Thank you, Renee. I'd like to ask you to please turn with me to our text for this morning, Psalm 129. Psalm 129, and we're uh, in the midst of a sermon series looking at the Psalms of Ascent. Um, We've talked about this a number of times throughout this series. These were the the Psalms, the songs that the Jewish pilgrims would have sung on their way to Jerusalem uh, for the various religious festivals that they would have attended there at the temple. And in our own way, we're kind of on a pilgrimage as well during the season of Advent. The only difference is that instead of uh, pilgrimaging and making our way to a capital city, we're making our way instead to the little town of Bethlehem. Instead of on our way to a temple, we're heading for a stable. And instead of going to a religious festival to celebrate uh, and offer sacrifices, we're going to meet a savior. And so we're gonna continue this series throughout this season of Advent. So Psalm 129, this is what the psalmist wrote to God's people back then as well as to us today. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say they have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained the victory over me. The plowman has plowed my back and made his furrows long, but the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like the grass of the roof roof which withers before it grows. The reaper is not able to fill his hands with it, nor the one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say to them, the blessing of the Lord be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, uh, the song Tub Thumping by the band Chumbawamba is, in my humble opinion, one of the most obnoxious and annoying songs ever written. Uh, It's right up there with uh, the song All Star by Smash Mouth. Uh, Both of those were late 90s hits. They're also both terrible. those were actually my formative years, uh, by the way, and I remember loving both of those songs back in, the na- back in the day, but now I can't help but remember what was going on at the time that those were the kind of songs that we liked, because they're just really bad. Uh, anyway, even if you don't know the name of the song, you've probably heard it before. It was all over the radio in the late 90s because of its infectious, repetitive, but also incredibly irritating chorus. I get knocked down, but I get up again. You're never gonna keep me down. I get knocked down, but I get up again, you're never gonna keep me down. I get knocked down, but I get up again, you're never gonna keep me down. One more time, I get knocked down, but I get up again, you're never gonna keep me down. It's just brilliant lyricism. Um, And the reason why I didn't sing it, by the way, is because the only thing worse than hearing that song is hearing me sing it, so. You know that song? Right, you do, yeah. You tend to hear it these days at sporting events, during reruns of late 90s sitcoms and on radio stations that feature late 90s music, which shouldn't be a thing, by the way, because all late 90s music is terrible, but I'm sure they're out there. Well, as bad as that song is, and I almost can't believe I'm about to say this, that chorus, I get knocked down, but I get up again, you're never gonna keep me down, is actually more or less a perfect summary of this psalm that we're looking at this morning. Psalm 129. And the reason why I make that comparison is because Psalm 129 is a song of perseverance. 
It takes the long view. It looks at the big picture. It stands back and it takes everything into account as it weighs the challenges and difficulties that we face in life. And that's what the psalmist is doing in the opening verses of this psalm as he recounts the struggles and difficulties of the Israelites. In verses one through three, he writes this. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say they have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained the victory over me. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. I'll suffice to say that the psalmist isn't painting a very pretty picture here. Imagine someone, he says, so oppressed, so beaten down, so downtrodden that it's as if they're lying face down in the middle of a farm field. The enemy has hitched up a plow to a team of oxen and he's treading back and forth, back and forth, back and forth across their back. Now to be fair, that's something that I think is, is more difficult for us to relate to these days. I mean, I would say few of us have enemies like that anymore. We might have people we don't like, people who aren't nice to us, people we'd rather not know or be around or have to spend time with, but enemies, real enemies, people who are actually out to get us, people who are trying to oppress us, people who want to kill us and wouldn't mind seeing us dead, I would say few of us have enemies like that anymore. But the Israelites sure did. And that, the psalmist says, is what it felt like for them to have to face those enemies. It was like lying face down in the soil with a mouthful of dirt and have their enemy treat them like a plot of ground, like a piece of their property, like a bit of land that they had to till and get ready to plant. That's what it's like to have an enemy, a real enemy. Someone who oppresses you, someone who knuckles you under, someone who's trying to ruin your life and destroy you. And that's what the psalmist is trying to express here in verses one through three. But then comes verse four. And then in verse four, the psalmist makes a turn. He writes suddenly, but the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. And there it is. That's the point that this psalm is trying to communicate to us. That's the lesson that it has for those of us who disciple ourselves to God. And that's also why it reminded me of that absolutely terrible song by Chumbawamba. It's because Psalm 129 is saying right there in verse 4 that one of the central, non-negotiable, required aspects of being a Christian is having the attribute, the quality, the virtue of perseverance because the evil that we face simply will not last. That's what the psalmist is writing here. And in order to see that this morning, I want us very simply to look at two kinds of perseverance at work in the world today. The first is the perseverance of the non-Christian, unbelieving, or atheistic world, okay? The world, you could say, outside the church. And then the second is the perseverance of the Christian. So the perseverance of the world and then the perseverance of the Christian. Let's start with the perseverance of the world. Uh, Put simply, the perseverance of the world, at least according to the psalmist here in Psalm 129, is ultimately futile. 
In his book on these Psalms, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Eugene Peterson points out that the image in verse four is actually a pretty comical one. Like we just talked about, in the verses preceding it, verses one through three, the psalmist imagines the people of Israel like someone lying face down in a field and having their backs plowed by a team of oxen. But in verse four, Peterson says, the reins have been cut. The Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. In other words, in verse four, what the psalmist does is he imagines the wicked, the enemies of God's people, still going about their business, still going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, trying to plow them under, only nothing is happening. They don't realize that the plow isn't connected anymore. Instead, God has cut the cords that tethered it to the oxen. And so the enemies of God's people are still working furiously, still trying to tread them down and oppress God's people, but they're not getting anywhere. It's not working. It's not accomplishing what they want. Instead, they're coming up empty. And the next image the psalmist offers is the same. In verses five through eight, he writes, may all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof, which withers before it can grow. A reaper cannot fill his hands with it, nor one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say to them, the blessing of the Lord be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Now context here is important. Um, Put simply, back then in that time and culture, most buildings were made out of some form of earth. Uh, At least people's homes were. Blocks of stone were expensive and so they were often only used for really important buildings like a temple or a public space, like maybe a, a theater or an arena, something like that. Wood was also expensive, at least if you wanted anything good and so that was kind of reserved for richer folks. And so for most people, that left them with things like mud or clay to work with in order to build their homes. Now the walls were easy enough, because what you would do is you would take that mud or that clay, you would mix some straw into it, put it in some mold, set it out in the sun to dry, and just like that, you could very quickly and rather inexpensively have yourself a whole bunch of bricks. And so what you did was you stacked them up, uh, maybe added an occasional piece of supporting lumber, and there you had it. Nice four walls for yourself. The tricky part was the roof. For that, what people often did was they would lay pieces of wood horizontally across the structure. Then they would cover them with straw, and then they would take more of that mud or clay and cover the straw with that, smooth it out, let it bake in the sun, and then that was your roof. The thing is, over time, though, some of that mud or that clay, because of the wind and the rain and the elements up on that roof, it would come loose. And so you would actually end up with a a very thin layer of soil up there. And as a result, things would eventually start to grow in it. Maybe a thin layer of grass, some weeds, a doomed tree or two. You could go up there and clear it all off, kind of like how you maybe have to clean your gutters occasionally these days, but you could also just leave it because eventually the sun would probably take care of it for you. And that's because the soil up there was thin. There wasn't much of it, it was shallow. And so as a result, the plants that would grow up there didn't have much of a root system. They couldn't dig down deep and get the water or the nutrients that they needed. And so as a result, when the sun came out and beat down on them, they would wither. And that's what the psalmist says the wicked are like. They're like that growth on the top of someone's house. They're inconvenient, you know, they're a nuisance, but they're also shallow. And so as a result, the psalmist says, They won't be there for very long. 
their efforts to sabotage God or his people, they're not gonna last. The psalmist's point is that it doesn't pay to oppose God. I mean, he's the creator and sustainer of the universe after all, right? And so the psalmist is saying that oppressing his people or opposing God is actually a losing game. It's like trying to plow when the rains have been cut. It's like trying to to get a good harvest on someone's roof. It's not gonna happen. In the end, it's gonna fail. It's not gonna last. You see, the truth is that the perseverance of the world is really no perseverance at all. As Peterson writes in his book, the life of the world that is opposed or indifferent to God is barren and futile. It is plowing a field thinking that you're tramping all over God's people and cutting his purposes to ribbons, but unaware that long ago your plow was disengaged. It is naively thinking that you might get a harvest of grain from that shallow patch of dirt on a shelf of rock. The way of the world is peppered with brief enthusiasms like the grass on that half inch of topsoil, springing up so wonderfully and without effort, but is quickly withering. The way of the world is marked by proud, God-defying purposes, unharnessed from eternity, and therefore worthless and futile. This, by the way, is why I personally try not to get all bent out of shape about how strange and weird and crazy the world has become in recent years. But simply, stuff has changed a lot the last couple of decades, at least from a Christian perspective, right? You see, we used to have what's called a Christianized culture. In other words, back during the early days of the church, Christians did such a good job of evangelizing and converting Western culture to the Christian faith that for a long time, centuries even, pretty much everyone in Western culture was a Christian. If you were a European or an American or even someone living in one of their colonies, it probably meant that you were a believer in Jesus Christ. And then that's the way it stayed for about a thousand years. But it's not that way anymore, is it? Instead, we now live in what folks have started to call a post-Christian culture. What they mean by that is that it's a culture that used to be Christian, but now it's not. It used to be converted, but now it's converted to something else. It used to be on board with the Christian faith, but now it's moved on. It has a memory of what it was like to be a Christian culture, but it's just that now. It's a memory. And so as a result, our culture is starting to look very strange to those of us who are still trying to live as Christians. In fact, it looks stranger by the day, doesn't it? It's things like sex and sexuality and gender. It's things like politics, party platforms, and candidates' character. Ethics, morality, and how we define what's good, our sense of meaning, significance, value, and worth, and where we get that from. Even the very idea of truth itself and what can and should be known or believed, it's all up for grabs. It's all in flux. It's all in the process of being debated, disputed, and redefined. And let's be honest, that's kind of scary, right? It's unnerving, and it makes those of us who do try to hold to some standards, some absolutes, some truths in those areas, it makes us feel nervous. After all, like I said, we had a Christianized culture for about a thousand years in Western culture. That's a long time. And so we got used to it. We got used to people thinking like us, acting like us, believing like us. And so now that they don't, it's weird and strange and scary and different. And the question becomes, what do we do now as Christians still trying to believe in a culture 
that doesn't anymore? Well, the answers vary a bit. For instance, some people get angry. They rant and rave, yell and scream, and go on and on about the way things used to be to anyone who will listen. I'll just say I don't think that's a very effective witness for the Christian faith. Far too many people in our post-Christian culture have a mental image of Christians as a bunch of angry malcontents. You think that's attractive to them? You think it's going to win them back to the fold? You think it's going to convince them to maybe give the gospel another shot? Not the non-Christians I know. Other Christians try to fight. They try to fight the changes politically, socially, artistically, however they can. But again, I don't think that's going to work either. And I've got a whole bunch of reasons for why I say that. But the biggest one is that the, mom- the momentum simply isn't in our favor anymore. This culture has changed so much to this point that the tide's just going to keep going out. We're going to keep becoming more post-Christian as a culture, not less. Um, In the words of Flannery O'Connor, there are still a decent number of Christ-haunted places, she calls them, places that, that are almost haunted by Christ and have more of a memory of the Christian faith, and I actually think West Michigan is one of them. Um... But the fact is that those are going to continue shrinking and disappearing just as they have everywhere else. And so other Christians try to hide. They try to turn the the church into a fortress. They put up walls, lock the doors, and batten down the hatches in order to keep the big bad world out there out. But I don't think that's the right response either. I don't think it's the right response because as Christians we're called to be in the world as witnesses to it even if we are not of it. And you can't do that if you try to take yourself out of the world. In fact, doing so goes against what Jesus explicitly, what Jesus explicitly prays for us in John chapter 17. And so what are we supposed to do in response to this changing, strange, weird, post-Christian reality we face? Well, the answer is simple. At least like many aspects of our faith, it's simple to say, it's not so simple to do. But we're called to trust God. We're called to put our hope in him. We're called to keep living as his people no matter how much things might fluctuate or shift or change around us. After all, the world opposed to his purposes cannot persevere. Evil will not always last. The reins of the wicked have been cut and the grass on the roof withers. The perseverance of the world, as the psalmist puts it here, is futile. And part of being a Christian, especially now, means really, really believing that. I mean, I'll just say from personal experience, because I used to get all bent out of shape about this stuff too. I used to get angry about it. I used to want to fight retake this culture for Christ. I mean, I still want to do that. It's just in a different way. But when you do finally trust, step back and put hope in God, when you do finally realize that the perseverance of the world is no match for God's power, it actually, what it actually does is it opens your eyes to the opportunities It helps you see the ways forward. It helps you see how even if this culture has, by and large, lost its faith, there's an incredible harvest that's just ripe for the church to go out there and reap. I mean, this is a sermon or a lecture or something for another time, but I'll just say that I actually have incredible hope for this world and this culture. 
I don't think that this is the end of the Christian story here in our society. I don't think that God's done working in our culture or our country. It's going to look different. In fact, it needs to look different than maybe the ways we used to go about that. But it's not the end. Instead, it's just the beginning of the next new thing that God is doing, just like he's done all throughout history. And that's something that the Israelites knew. I mean, after all, they saw God deliver them over and over and over throughout their history. They saw him show up time and again. They saw him come through for them. As the psalmist says in verses one and two, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say they have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained the victory over me. Why? Because the God who is opposed to oppression, the God who is opposed to evil, the God who is opposed to wickedness and to those who perpetrated against him and his people, he was on their side. The creator and sustainer of the universe was waiting in the wings. The provider of all things, their provider, was in their corner. And he's in ours too. You know, we've, we've said this throughout this series. That doesn't mean that everything is always going to go perfectly for us as Christians. As we've made our way through these Psalms of Ascent, part of what I've come to appreciate about them is their realism. Okay? There's an earthiness to the Psalms of Ascent, a grittiness, a down-to-earth, in-the-midst-of-the-fray authenticity to them. These Psalms don't bat their eyes, turn their gaze, or smile prettily at the wrongs of the world in some attempt to paper over them and act like they don't really matter. That would be unfair and also unbiblical. But what these Psalms do encourage us to do is persevere. Come what may. Regardless of what might happen, no matter what we might deal with, Psalm 129 and the other psalms in this sequence of ascent simply tell us to keep living like the people of God. Keep living like his disciples and keep living like the Christians that we are. That's the long obedience that Eugene Peterson refers to in the title of his book on these psalms. That's what Christian discipleship looks like. That's what we're called to in this way of faith that we travel. We are called to long obedience. We are called to endurance. We are called to perseverance, no matter what. That's actually what this entire season of the church year is all about. As we've already heard this morning, this is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent literally means waiting. It's a season of expectation, a season of patience, a season of anticipation. In Advent, we wait. We wait for a Savior. We actually wait for him in two ways during Advent. First of all, we wait for when we get to celebrate his coming on Christmas, and in doing so, we actually get to live into, commemorate, and remember what it would have been like for God's Old Testament people waiting for a savior back then. But we also wait for him in another way during Advent. We wait for him to come back. We wait for him to come again. We wait for him to come and finish everything he started the last time he was here and bring it all to completion. And in the meantime, as we wait, 
we persevere. And that brings us to the gospel this morning. You see, another word that Peterson uses for perseverance is a phrase he used to hear as a child growing up, stick to You ever hear that? It's the sort of thing grandmas say to their grandkids, right? You have no stick to Well, you know who does have stick to God does. Peterson writes, that God sticks with us is the reason Christians can look back over a long life, crisscrossed with cruelties, unannounced tragedies, unexpected setbacks, sufferings, disappointments, depressions, look back across all of that and see it as a road of blessing and make a song out of what we see. They've kicked me around ever since I was young, but they could never keep me down. God sticks to his relationship. He establishes a personal relationship with us and stays with it. The central reality for Christians is the personal, unalterable, preserving commitment God makes to us. Perseverance is not the result of our determination. It is the result of God's faithfulness. We survive in the way of faith not because we have extraordinary stamina, but because God is righteous, because God sticks with us. Christian discipleship is a process of paying more and more attention to God's righteousness and less and less attention to our own, finding the meaning of our own lives not by probing our moods and motives and morals, but by believing in God's will and purposes, making a map of the faithfulness of God, not charting the rise and fall of our enthusiasms. It is out of such a reality that we acquire perseverance. And that, my friends is also the gospel, pure and simple. That's how we learn to stick with God, to persevere with him, to continue traveling this road of long obedience and waiting, anticipating, looking ahead to how it's all going to turn out. We learn to do that because he first did it for us. He endures, he perseveres, he sticks with us, he always has, And he always will. And so as a result, we must learn to do the same. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we learn our perseverance, this long obedience, this endurance we are called to as disciples. We learn it from you. You have never given up on your people. You have never given up on us as human beings, and you never will. Lord, help us to continue to live as your people. Through your Holy Spirit, create in us the stamina that we need the endurance that we seek, and the vision of you that will guide us along the way. It's in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.